Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. I am indeed Richard Roper. Thanks to everybody who has been joining us. Lo, these many years, months, weeks, and days, we really appreciate it. Uh, lots going on in the worlds of uh, entertainment, movies, pop culture. We're going to get to all of that in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you, the Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Going to start off, guys, this is breaking news. I'm recording uh, this for you uh, on Wednesday, and we've just recently uh, learned that uh, Sinead O'Connor has died at the age of 56. An amazing voice, an amazing talent, a brave and um, tireless worker uh, for just causes. Sinead O'Connor also had a Unfortunately, a very troubled life. She has died at the age of 56. As of this recording, we don't know the cause of death. Uh, the story from Variety just has a statement from her family saying, it is with great sadness we announce the passing of our beloved Sinead. Her family and friends are devastated and have requested privacy at this very difficult time. Uh, O'Connor, who has been outspoken about her decades-long struggle with mental illness, wrote on her Facebook page earlier this month she had moved back to London and was finishing an album. Really just an incredible life. Uh, there was a great documentary just a, a, about a year ago about the life and times of Sinead O'Connor. Uh, she had this huge breakthrough when she was still very young. Uh, she had a debut album called The Lion and the Cobra, uh, went gold. She got a Grammy nomination. And then her second album, if you were around at the time, you'll remember this. It just absolutely exploded. It was called I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got and included Sinead O'Connor's uh, arrangement and rendition of a Prince song called Nothing Compares to You, which was a huge hit. Uh, one of the most memorable and haunting and beautiful videos of all time. And it really catapulted Sinead O'Connor into a category of pop star, which I don't know necessarily that she had ever really wanted. She continued to do great work through the years. In 1993, there was a huge controversy when she ripped up a picture of the Pope into pieces on Saturday Night Live. It was a protest against sexual abuse within the church. There were all kinds of uh, you know different uh, incidents and episodes in Sinead O'Connor's career. Uh, she revealed nearly 20 years ago that she had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and had attempted suicide. Um, I'm here in Chicago, as I know a lot of you know by this point. Um, and there was a, a very strange story about seven or eight years ago. She was actually living, Sinead O'Connor was living in a, a north suburban town of Chicago called Wilmette, a, a very well-known and very well-to-do and wealthy town in a beautiful suburb. Um, I, I honestly don't know what had brought her there, but she had gone missing. Someone saw her on a bicycle in Wilmette and then she disappeared, but then she was found and she was okay. Um, but just, just a, unfortunately a very troubled life. Um, and just, uh, just last year, her, uh, son Shane died by suicide. He was just 17 years old. So as I mentioned, um, this is just happening as I started to do the podcast guys, and we don't know the cause of death, but we really wish, for Sinead O'Connor to rest in peace, rest in harmony. Um, an amazing artist, 
And again, a, a very brave uh, advocate for a lot of people who couldn't advocate for themselves. So uh, really, really sad news there. Uh, we're going to pivot. There's no way to do this gracefully, but we're going to pivot and talk about things happening in the worlds of entertainment and pop culture and news and everything that's on a screen. As you recall, the podcast was originally called Screen Time. And as you're hearing this, we're we're only a week or so out from uh, the dual release, of course, of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Those two movies, as vastly different as they are, will always be linked because they came out on the same day. And it's really incredible, guys. Um, we all knew uh, that these movies were going to do well. I don't think anybody saw them. Certainly the industry didn't see them hitting these numbers. The story right now, as we speak, again, less than a week uh, into the release of these two films, uh, Barbie has crossed $200 million and Oppenheimer over $100 million. And when you think about that, both incredible numbers, Greta Gerwig, uh, directing uh, Barbie, of course, and Christopher Nolan, uh, the man uh, behind Oppenheimer. But you know, you look at—I think Barbie has a running time of just under two hours, which is not that long according to you know today's uh, uh, standards. Which means you can get people in and out of the theaters every couple of hours, a little bit more than two hours with trailers and everything. Oppenheimer is a three-hour movie. Now, I know in some cases they've uh, the theaters have said we're not going to show any trailers; we're going to get right to it because it is three hours. There's not an intermission. But in some cases, there are trailers, which a friend of mine uh, reported that he's had to sit through 24 minutes um, of trailers before finally seeing the film, which means it's a three and a half hour experience, which means it's about a four hour turnaround before that particular theater can show it again. So when you consider that, when you consider that it's a historical biopic and obviously very serious material, the fact that this movie has made over $100 million already is really incredible. Uh, another friend of mine went to a theater in Chicago on a Tuesday night for the 10 p.m. showing, which was the last showing that night at the AMC in downtown Chicago in Streeterville is the neighborhood. And he was like, it's jam packed. He bought a seat in advance. He goes, there are like three empty seats in the first couple of rows. And that's it. That's for a 10 p.m. Tuesday showing of Oppenheimer, which means everybody was getting out of there at 1 a.m. I just love that. I love movie lovers. And uh, there's something really magical about so many people wanting to see these original films, by the way. I mean, Barbie, obviously, you know, is based on a popular toy and there have been 40 minor movies and videos and stuff about Barbie. But it's an original piece of work. It's not a sequel. It's not part of a, an extended universe, although they're talking about having an extended Barbie universe. And we are going to see, I think, some sequels and spinoffs. I don't know if Greta Gerwig is going to be attached or Marco Robbie or Ryan Gosling. But there's a lot of material in there and a lot of characters who probably could uh, earn a standalone movie Oppenheimer obviously an original film and it's pretty cool that so many people want to see these movies uh the the money is just gonna in the box office just gonna continue to grow globally uh Barbie has grossed more than 400 million dollars and uh Oppenheimer is is starting to add uh films uh, uh money I'm sorry as well has 238 million international and domestic combined so the numbers are just huge here and hooray for hollywood we hope that the strikes come to an end soon so they can get back everybody can get back to the business of creating work in particular original movies uh we've seen some of the records that they've broken barbie largest domestic opening of 2023 largest warner brothers advanced sales they barbie sold 50 million dollars in tickets in advance that's incredible you know it wasn't so long ago in the last couple of decades, you could do this, but it wasn't so long ago. You had to buy the tickets the day of the movie. You know, you couldn't buy them in advance a generation ago. So they had ideas and projections, but really didn't know for sure how the movies were going to do until they actually 
or in theaters. Now they get a pretty good idea, especially from advanced sales. But wow, $50 million of tickets in advance. Largest domestic opening for Margot Robbie. It was her biggest movie for Ryan Gosling. Uh, overseas, the biggest overseas launch for uh, two big stars who have been doing this for 15 years now. And uh, Barbies are already surpassed the lifetime grosses of many other female-led blockbusters. That would include uh, Ocean's 8, Bird of Prey, and Little Women. Oppenheimer, in the meantime, also Nolan's third highest growing, grossing opening weekend ever after a couple of the Dark Knight movies. Uh, the biggest global opening for a drama since 2019. Uh, the highest grossing opening weekend for an R-rated film this year. Biggest IMAX opening for a Christopher Nolan movie. The biggest non-superhero Nolan opening weekend in 55 different markets. On and on the accolades and numbers go. But of course, as you know, we've also seen this uh, Barbie backlash, which I, I have to weigh in on this, guys. It's because I, I just think it's kind of funny that, uh, that uh, so many men... Uh, and it, it's kind of predictable. They were already there was already a certain faction that was uh, predisposed to, to ripping into Barbie as this woke movie about feminism. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz, who can always be counted on to weigh in on matters of popular culture about which he knows little. He says that the movie is kissing up to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Cruz was referring to the drummer, the drummer. Hey, I'm from Boston. Cruz was referring to the drama over the inclusion of a map in the film that appears to show the nine dash line, which reinforces China's territorial claims in the South China Sea. Warner Brothers explained the map is a childlike crayon drawing and the dotted lines actually show the route from Barbie land to the real world. Then there's that um, Ben Shapiro guy. You know, that guy, um, I will I will say this. He gets a lot of attention, has tons of uh, viewers and followers or whatever he's that little bearded guy he looks like a russian nesting doll miniature version of roy kent from ted lasso uh he was really really upset about barbie he posted a viral video in which he set barbie dolls on fire with a lighter which i don't know what what is that <laughs> setting dolls on fire i mean first of all it's it's a movie but okay you had to buy the doll it's sort of like when the people were crushing the what was it bud light the, the cases of bud light with tractors or shooting them with their automatic rifles because they were mad at the woke ad campaign. So um, Shapiro did like a 40 minute uh, rant about the movie after he saw it. Uh, and he predicted it was going to fall off a cliff at the box office. Uh, yeah, that was not true. Not uh, correct. I just think it's funny. You know, uh, this there was a little bit of this earlier this year with the movie called Joyride in which, you know, it was a female led comedy like bridesmaids. It's not the first, but we still, it's still relatively rare. The women are, are the leads in the, what would traditionally be the guy roles and the men are objectified. And in most cases look pretty silly and are marginalized and reduced to stereotypes, which is also the case with Barbie. I might also point out that, you know, people saying, Oh, poor Ken, Ken is treated like a moron and an afterthought and a doof is he's been a dipshit forever in the Barbie franchise, man. You know, it was always Barbie and Ken. I, I mean, even when kids played with the dolls, when I was a kid, of course, I was playing with GI Joe because he was a fighting man from head to toe, but you know, we, my sisters and all the friends would be playing with Barbie. They, it was all about Barbie. And Barbie would start getting cool careers. She started off as a fashion model and stereotypical Barbie as Margot Robbie plays her. She plays the stereotypical Barbie as she refers to herself. But then, you know, we had Dr. Barbie and teacher Barbie and Barbie getting on careers and uh, flight attendant Barbie, whatever the case may be. I, I could be wrong about this. Again, I am not a canologist. 
but I don't know. I don't know how many advancements Ken had beyond being uh, arm candy uh, for Barbie, which is the movie makes fun of that. And yes, there are, you know, constant references to the patriarchy and Barbie has this rude awakening when she enters the real world and sees that women don't run the world. And yes, there's a, a long and admittedly a little bit heavy handed speech uh, at one point, a long speech about what women have to go through, except for it's absolutely accurate. But the idea that anybody could be offended by this, first of all, it's a social satire. It's a bright candy colored movie. Yes, there's some commentary in there, but it really, other than the one speech, it really doesn't hit you over that with it. It's really just this fun romp that kind of takes the, the the Barbie story and and extrapolates it into a Truman Show kind of tale. And yeah, there's there's some insights in there, but uh, the idea that anybody could be offended by this cracks me up, and and, and talks about you know the male characters uh, being uh, marginalized and objectified. I want to, <laughs> I only have so much time in the podcast, but this is off the top of my head, guys. I wrote this list today since I started doing this job a long, long time ago. I, I started thinking about all the movies and some of them are really, really good. I want to preface it by saying some of these I, I consider to be great romantic comedies or sex comedies, if you will, many are rated, but in all of the ones I'm going to list to you, and trust me, this is just a partial list. The argument could, can be made. And in many cases, the argument is very obvious that these movies uh, have female characters who are objectified, marginalized, turned into sex objects, exist only as the object of lust for the men. Even something I'll start off by saying Love Actually is a film that I love. But, you know, in recent years, there have been countless essays and, and pieces written about the treatment of women in Love Actually, how every, you know, single, just about every sub subplot is from the male point of view and the women are the objects of the romance. I, you know, I think it's, it's a fairy tale and I personally am not offended by it, but I could see how some people are, but I'm just going to give you a list of a few, just a few of the comedies in which the, it's all about the guys and the women are, are in some cases, sex workers or pinup girls or just fantasy objects. In some cases are the, uh, are, are actually the subjects of peeping Tom's, or sexual assault. And these are, again, comedies. So all these men who are offended by Barbie, I think the scale's still tipping a little bit in the other direction because of, you know, 16 Candles, The Woman in Red, Revenge of the Nerds, Porky's, Hard Body, She's All That, Bachelor Party, Going All the Way, Tomboy, Private Resort, My Tutor, Blame It Unreal, Private School, Student Bodies, National Lampoons, Animal House, Stripes, Zapped, Private Lessons, Losing It, Joysticks, homework, American Pie, on and on and on it goes. I'm only up to about the year 2000 in that list I put together, guys. So to me, it's it's bullshit, fake outrage. And if these guys, these men, these public figures are really offended by Barbie, I mean, how tiny, how small, how small is your perspective? Okay. Let's take a break and hear about Portillo's. And then we're going to talk about some new movies and TV series coming out this weekend. All right, let's talk about Portillo's. Now, they, of course, are known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients right down to that poppy seed bun. And then, of course, there's the legendary chocolate cake. 
you're hearing this right now, that means you are alive and near a computer. That's all you got to be. That's all you need to go to Portillo's.com and check out their entire selection of stuff you can get anywhere in these United States of America. Now, if you're blessed enough to live near a Portillo's, then you don't have to worry about getting online. Just go to the store, get the hot dogs, get the Italian beef, the salads, the chicken. They got it great. And then, of course, the chocolate cake, the single greatest item of all chocolate cake items in the history of humanity. You think I'm overstating that? I am not. Go and find out yourself. Go to the store, order online. Unbelievable, the chocolate cake. And they even have a cake shake. They take the cake, they smoosh it into a can with some super cool ingredients. I don't know, they do a bunch of stuff. There's ice cream, and all of a sudden you got a chocolate cake shake. When it comes out of the blender, it's the best. It is a unique dining experience every time go to portillos.com find a location near you you can order online p-o-r-t-i-l-l-o-s portillos.com it's time to assemble the dream team we find someone who can communicate with these ghosts people used to eat here. I told you she's good. Uh, it's a dining room. I found a professor who else wanted mansions. I've been dying to go to this place for years. Mystery lurks around every corner. I summon Madame Leota! I can show you what happened, but it will cost you three dollars. What? Mom. It's highway robbery. Who said that? Okay, that's a little bit of an audio snippet from Haunted Mansion. Uh, this is the second attempt to make a movie out of the Haunted Mansion uh, Dark Ride, as they call it, theme attraction. It's at a number of the Disney parks here in the States and abroad. I want to give you a couple of other ones. If you ask people to name a movie based on a Disney theme park attraction, of course, everybody thinks of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, which has made you know over a billion dollars and many, many entries in that franchise. I remember when that first came out, I thought before I saw it, but I knew I was going to be reviewing it. I'm like, how are they going to make a movie out of that? But then you saw the cast, you know, Johnny Depp and Kira Knightley and et cetera, et cetera. And through the movies, tons of great character actors. And you thought, all right, they're going to do something different with that. They also made a movie uh, based on Tower of Terror, Mission to Mars, Tomorrowland, Jungle Cruise. And of course, the Country Bears. They tried to make a movie out of the Country Bears, which was about as bad as you can believe. I'm one of the few people who has actually seen it. It's it's terrible, folks. It's just terrible. So now they did the, the Haunted Mansion in 2003. It was an Eddie Murphy vehicle. Eddie wanted to do, I remember reading about this at the time. Eddie was looking to do kind of an Abbott and Costello, old fashioned, you know, scary horror comedy. So they kind of tailored to him. They invented some new characters and they went more, way more for the comedy than the scares. I, I don't think it really works well. And it, it got killed by the critics. It did okay at the box office, but it's interesting because in subsequent years, it's had a pretty good uh, life on various home video, you know, digital platforms. It has, I don't think people are revisiting it and saying this is a classic, but a lot of people really enjoy it. It's, it's pretty harmless. Uh, I did like the new version of Haunted Mansion because they went a little bit more for the scares. It's still, it's not super scary, but the practical and special effects are, are pretty terrific. Uh, and it's got some pretty heavy stuff. Uh, the great Lakeith Stanfield plays Ben. Now, he was once this passionate engineer who was working on a camera that could capture images of things the human eye cannot see, like paranormal activity. 
But then after his wife was uh, killed in a car accident, he kind of he falls into crawls into a bottle. He 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 starts giving tours of haunted New Orleans. That's what his wife did before she was killed. But he doesn't really believe in it. He's just doing it to continue her her legacy. He doesn't believe for a second in ghosts in the afterlife. And then comes uh, Father Kent, played by Owen Wilson in classic Owen Wilson role. He's a hipster priest. He tells Ben about a haunted mansion that's uh, about an hour north of New Orleans. And he goes up there. Ben goes up there and finds a single mother, played by Rosario Dawson, and her little nine-year-old son, played by Chase W. Dillon, who's hilarious. They're both, they're great together. And soon enough, even though at first he doesn't believe it, uh, he finds out that this place is super haunted. And the twist here is that once you've crossed the threshold into the haunted mansion, if you leave, because you're always thinking like, well, why doesn't this mom and her son leave this giant mansion that she was going to turn into a bed and breakfast, by the way? Well, no matter where they go, the ghosts follow them. So they figured we might as well stay at the mansion and figure out a way to do some sort of exorcism, somehow separate ourselves uh, from the ghost. Tiffany Haddish has a role as a psychic, very much like the Whoopi Goldberg role in Ghost, in that she's this very flashy psychic who maybe doesn't even believe herself that she has any powers and then finds out that she actually does have psychic powers. Jamie Lee Curtis has a great role. Uh, Jared Leto plays the main villain. Danny DeVito shows up. So it's got this great A-list cast and they're having a lot of fun with this. It's not, not to be taken seriously, although it is. I love the fact that Keith Stanfield plays this role as if he's in uh, a hardcore drama. He's a mourning guy. He's a guy who's in grief in the stages of grief over his wife. And he plays it that way. So while everybody else, you know, Danny DeVito and Jamie Lee Curtis, these comedic veterans who could do anything, they're having kind of a romp. Owen Wilson doing his own Wilson thing. Tiffany Haddish having fun in the middle of all this. We have this kind of very heavy story, but you know, then becomes kind of a kind of a, a, a fun feel good ending. So not a great film. Three stars, Haunted Mansion. But I think it's actually going to speaking of box off. It's going to do really well. A lot of people have already seen Barbie and Oppenheimer. We're toward the end of summer. A lot of parents, you know, it's maybe just before or after the last summer vacation, a few more weeks before the kids are in school. They're looking to see something. So many people have, I yeah, listen, I'm not a huge Disney theme park attraction guy. We didn't go when I was a kid. Our field trips were, you know, down the block. <laughs> it's just, the, you know, the reality of life. Boo-hoo. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying there was no way my family was ever going to Disneyland or Disney World when we were kids. It was just out of the budget. But I've been there a few times, mostly doing promotional things because uh, Ebert and Roper, our show, the parent company was Disney. So we would do promotional things, speeches and stuff. And I did some voiceover once for uh, an attraction at uh, Disney World. So I've been there enough times. I'm not one of these people that can tell you all about Space Mountain and Haunted Mansion. But I know just from, from reading about this that there are a lot of people who are very excited about this because they know all the details and all the characters from uh, the theme ride attraction. So they're hoping the movie is faithful to that, but also expands on it. So I, I think they'll find it very interesting and fun, mostly fun. You know, here's another one about, uh, I don't know, this isn't really a family friendly movie, but it's about a family phenomenon. If you're of a certain age, you're going to remember when Beanie Babies were all the rage in the late, mid 1990s, late 1990s. So Beanie Babies, these, you know, they were up until then, almost all stuffed animals were stuffed to the gills. You know what I mean? If you think about the classic teddy bear 
our stuffed line or whatever, you know, the collection of stuffed animals kids would have on their bed and they they play with. Uh, they were, you know, they were stuffed to the gills. And the, the you know, the unique one of the many unique things about the beanie babies is they were these plush toys that you could move and bend. They were, you know, they were you could kind of feel the stuffing of it. They were understuffed, if you will. And they they all had little names and cute little backstories. And um, there was a guy by the name of Ty Warner. Uh, again, I'm in Chicago and he was from the Chicago area who is in a strange and eccentric man. And Zach Galifianakis does a great job of capturing this guy who's still around, by the way, but he's become a recluse. But anyway, Ty Warner started off with this small plush toy business. He was into stuffed cats, which, you know, again, grown ass man. That's what he was into, whatever. Uh, and he started marketing and then he then he started coming up with this idea, along with the help of uh, three women. And the movie's all about really how he royally screwed over these various women who got their got their comeuppance or actually should say got their uh living well is the best revenge moments, at least according to the movie, which is highly fictionalized. But anyway, they started to come up with these uh, beanie babies. They'd go to toy fairs and stuff, sell, sold them only to a few stores here in the Chicago area. And Taiwan are part of the genius of the beanie baby marketing was they wouldn't do, they wouldn't have the toys in the big market, you know, Toys R Us, uh, big box stores because they wanted to make them special. And then they did the limited edition thing. So they would say, oh, there's only so many of this particular beanie baby which made them uh, suddenly in demand and it was a this kind of confluence of events because that was right around the same time that the internet was taking off and ebay was a thing and all of a sudden people were buying eBay, uh, beanie babies uh for five or seven bucks or whatever and then selling them for many times that value on ebay so it was sort of like the 1990s version of I don't know, Pokemon, which came of, well, Kent was already around at the same time, but became huge in America in the 2000s. And then all these NFTs and Bitcoin-y things where you're like, well, why are they worth so much? They're worth so much because people will pay for them. And that's what happened with Beanie Baby. So this is an Apple TV Plus movie, by the way. It was in theaters, but I think you can get it now on Apple TV Plus. Uh, so this is uh, another on what we're calling the corporate biopic. This is the year of the corporate biopic. We've had Air which is, the, of course, this, the Ben Affleck film, the Tetris movie. We had Blackberry. We had Flamin' Hot about the guy who claim to, claims that he invented the Flamin' Hot Cheeto. And even Barbie, although that's not, that's sort of an outlier. But the corporate biopic is all the rage this year. This one, they jumble up and down and go back and forth on the timeline a little bit too much for my liking, but it's very well done. It's an incredible story. And it's about really, you know, this guy who wanted to be Mr. Megorium meets Willy Wonka and was a genius on some level. A Ty Warner made one year he made more money than like Mattel, the entire corporation made as an individual, because that was the other thing. He was squeezing out people who had helped him along the way. So, you know, he could be this sort of magical, childlike, amazing uh, guy. And uh, Ty was the name of the company, right? Uh, Ty Inc. for Ty Warner. But he also could take credit for things that he never really was a part of. He didn't know what the internet was when it was brought to his attention. The movie, again, it's a highly fictionalized adaptation of a nonfiction book, but it's pretty much, it has that essential ring of truth. And it's a fascinating tale about the rise and then the inevitable crash of Beanie Babies. Do you know what the greatest thing about America is? You can make things happen here like nowhere else. You have the power to create your own future. You can be anything. You can do anything. You want to sell high-end stuffed Himalayan cats? Understuffed, actually, for greater possibility. We're professionals. We're giving the people what they need. 
I would tell you he did it all. <gasps> Which is as crazy as believing stuffed animals are gold. This has always been my company. Company we created together. Why do you have to be so dramatic? I mean... My salary's been reduced 75%. Yeah, I'm just doing what's necessary. You know, running the real, actual business over here. I only want to speak to Oprah Winfrey. Has she reached out? I also want to mention uh, very quickly, uh, there's a new set of sports documentaries from Netflix. Remember, uh, Untold. This is the third uh, entry. Uh, in the, these are the these are these great sports documentaries that get into a lot of scandals and dark moments in sports. And a lot of times they revisit the people if they're still around and talk to them about their parts in the scandal. You're going to see it. And you're going to celebrate it. In four, three, two, one. This is a story of a kid who lost himself and boxing saved his life. At Florida Gator football, there's no second place trophies. We train like soldiers. This team had a chance to be so special and we were so close to doing it. It is the biggest doping scandal in sports history, including Barry Bonds. We determined what to take, when to take it. It was all based on circumventing the testing. Manziel Madness has spawned the nickname Johnny Football. I thought I played better the harder I partied. 19-year-old kid, have 100 grand stuffed under your bed. It was awesome. You think you've seen something now, you haven't seen shit yet. This is going to be unfucking believable. Uh, this one, volume three, uh, has four different chapters. One is about Jake Paul, the YouTuber turned boxer, and his brother. What's the brother's name? Logan. Jake and Logan Paul. Now, I, you know, I, I made a career out of kind of avoiding these guys, these bros, but you can't not be aware of how popular they are. And this, I won't say that it changed my opinion, but you do in each case with these uh, docuseries, these chapters, which are about people that a lot of folks love to hate, you at least gain some more understanding and maybe even some empathy for them. So we learn the story of Jake and Logan Paul. It is incredible. You know, they made these wacky home videos like everybody was doing in the 2000s from their home in, in uh, suburban Cleveland, I think it was. And they just, be, you know, they just became insanely popular by the time Jake Paul was 18 years old folks he had more than 2 billion views on his uh, various uh, social media platforms he had moved to LA he'd been cast in a Disney Channel series he was worth millions he bought a 7.4 million dollar house when he was 18 and right around the time everyone was like there was a lot of backlash because he did a lot of numbskull things a lot of stupid antics and we were like is he really an actor Disney dropped him because of some of the shit he was pulling was he a singer no a rapper is he a comedian not really and that's right around the time Jake Paul decided he was going to become a boxer, which outraged the boxing community. Uh, they're like, you can't just decide, you know, when you're 19 or 20, you're going to become a boxer. Most fighters, for better or for worse, start when they're six, seven, eight, nine years old and, you know, hone their craft for more than a dozen years before becoming pro boxers, sometimes even longer. All of a sudden, this guy was fighting. He's fighting basketball players. He's fighting MMA fighters. He's other YouTubers. Uh, and then he fought. Uh, Tommy Fury, an actual boxer, and he lost a split decision, but it was, yeah, he gave a respectable showing. So this chronicles all of that. And it's really interesting because you see what you want about the guy. He's, you know, really poured himself into this. And as Mike Tyson points out in the documentary, 
you know, he, he came into boxing and he wasn't the only YouTuber, but at a time when mixed martial arts had wildly overtaken boxing, most people can't, you know, there was a time you could name a heavyweight champion, a middleweight champion, you know, they were huge stars and huge events and boxing was flailing. And then all of a sudden people wanted to see this guy fight huge pay-per-view numbers, uh, selling out arenas. Uh, so it leaves, I think he's still only like 25, 26 years old, Jake Paul. And he's, you know, continuing on wanting to be a boxer. Interesting backstory as well. Uh, I'm not a convert, but I thought they did a really good job of kind of explaining who this guy is and where he comes from. And there's no denying that he's a master at self-promotion. There's no denying that. Another uh, untold chapter this time around is called, uh, it's about Johnny Manziel. And uh, you might remember that it, God, it was only 12 years ago that Johnny Football, as he was known, uh, he was the first freshman to win the Heisman Trophy. He was a huge star. And then he let it all slip away because he just partied and partied and partied and partied. He played two years at Texas A&M, was drafted by the Cleveland Browns, and within two years was out of the NFL. He's done a bunch of Canadian football and stuff like that, but never really has taken off. And uh, again, you know, Manziel is his own worst enemy, and he'd be the first to tell you that. And he is the first to tell you that. I give him credit for sitting in front of the cameras talking about you know, he's still only 30 years old and he just, he's, you know, he's, he just pissed it all away. He even says he went on a $5 million bender, dealt with depression, was suicidal, trying to get his life together. Incredible story. And um, it's very much, again, like the YouTube story with, with Jake and Logan Paul, we're reminded like, you know, he was 19 years old, uh, Johnny Menzel. And I'm not excusing anybody's behavior, but you know, these guys are 18, 19 years old and they're thrust in the spotlight. Everybody loves them. People twice and three times their age are, acting like groupies around them. They can get anything they want. They can get away with anything they want. And you wonder like, how well would I, would I have handled it when I was 19 years old? Uh, the documentary series also gets into uh, the whole Balco thing and Victor Conte, remember, and Barry Bonds. We've seen a lot of that before, but it's still interesting to see, you know, that again, that moment in time in the 90s and early 2000s when a lot of track and field superstars and baseball superstars were using these various PEDs. And it goes into a deep dive about how Victor Conte and Balco figured out ways to kind of avoid the test and get around the testing until they couldn't. And then finally, the last uh, entry in the series is about the Florida football program. Uh, it's called Swamp Kings, and it's all about Urban Meyer and Tim Tebow and the Florida football team from 2005 to 2010. They won two national championships. Uh, Urban Meyer became a Florida legend. Tebow, of course, one of the most famous and in some cases polarizing uh, college football players of all time. Although I never really kind of got the hate because just because the guy wore his religion on his sleeve, he didn't he didn't shove it down my throat. If he wants to get down on his knee, you know, take a knee in prayer or whatever, that's that's his prerogative. Uh, in the meantime, there were also a lot of Florida football players who, especially after they won their first national championship, again, we have the theme of 18, 19, 20 year olds who uh, have the world as their oyster and don't always handle it very well. Uh, Gainesville was known as Gaines Vegas because there was so much partying going on there. And, uh, you know, not everybody uh, came out of that in good shape. But in each case, with these sports documentaries, uh, they don't excuse anyone's behavior, but they do provide a lot of valuable context. I think, you know, especially if you're a huge sports fan, uh, these untold uh, documentaries from Netflix are absolutely fantastic. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Richard Roper Podcast. We will talk to you all very soon.